you know, the weather's getting warmer. So I, for one, am ready to say goodbye to my jackets and my sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I'm right there with you, Kate. And you know what I actually, actually, I donned double quince the other night. I've got to tell you. Okay. This is what's so great about quince because I feel like I have really been able to update my wardrobe like for the long haul without spending a fortune. I wore a gorgeous white tee, like a simple, perfect white cotton t-shirt from Mm. quince, but it was a little chilly out. So I threw on my cashmere hoodie, also from quince. Ooh, Mm -hmm. okay. Like they have basically given me a lineup of timeless pieces that I feel like keep me looking. I'm going to toot my own horn. Effortlessly chic, whether it's winter or or summer. They've got premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30. You got washable silk tops, really stunning 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. Like truly the list goes on and on. And the best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes, something that's very important to us. So look, If you're going on a trip, if you just need to update your summer wardrobe, get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash forever35 for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash forever35 to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash forever35. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, look, I don't know about you, but when I hold on to some negative feelings, it really starts to impact my day to day. Mm. I get a little snippy and short with the people in my life. Things start to really feel overwhelming. And look, it's just generally not great for me or for the people that I am interacting with. And I do find that my time in therapy is a real safe space to get those things off my chest and figure out how to work on and work through things that are weighing on me Mm. or maybe weighing on you. For example, like I have actually really been working on mindfulness in therapy. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Easier said than done, but that's the work, right? Like just learning about kind of like really creating a breathing practice and paying attention to my physical body and my feelings Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and to learn productive coping skills. If you're thinking about trying therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient and accessible anywhere because it is 100% online. All it takes to get started is filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not vibing with the therapist, you can switch at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Forever35 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Forever35. (laughs) 
Hello, and welcome to Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we're not experts. No, Dory, but you and I are friends who like to talk a lot about serums. It's true. And you can visit our website, forever35podcast.com, for links to everything we mentioned on the show. Please do follow us on Twitter at Forever35Pod, on Instagram at Forever35Podcast. And you can join the Forever 35 Facebook group where the password is serums. We also have a, our newsletter has been revived, dusted off the shelf, and sent <laughs> back out into the, the dust world. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we have. And if you want to sign up for that, you can find it at forever35podcast.com slash newsletter. Very easy URL to remember. And if you want to reach us, you can call us or text us at 781-591-0390. Or you can email us at forever35podcast at gmail.com. And hey, we appreciate when you leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for doing that. If you have, we appreciate it. If you haven't, give it a whirl. (laughs) No pressure, of course, as my mom would say. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Dory, hello. You're talking to a vaccinated woman. I'm so proud of you. I'm tired. I am tired today. I apologize, listeners, if I'm a little low energy, but my friend Moderna really gave it to me hard this week. So, Mm. yeah, I I think I told you this. I had a weird backache when I got my second shot. Yeah. And did it last? No, it was like exactly 24 hours. Wow. I know. It's very, very strange. I was like very flu-ish yesterday with like the teeniest of fevers, nothing above like 99.5, but I just felt really off and out of it. And then today I feel much better, but I'm <clears throat> I'm tired and I have a lot of swollen lymph nodes. Yikes. Like a tender armpit. Oh, and that's a, no fun. I mean, it's not, but hey, it's all worth it, right? Like I'll take it. Oh. A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Like it's, it's all good. I mean, this vaccine is the ultimate self care. It's true. So now, Kate, we are, yes. we are all thrilled that you got the vaccine. We think everyone should get the vaccine, but you do have some more important news to share. <laughs> yes. More importantly than me now <laughs> being fully vaccinated is the fact that my activity for my post vaccine resting period was Finishing the first season of Dory's favorite show, <laughs> Call My Agent. And actually, while I was watching it, we oh. received a message from a listener that was like, Kate, I can't believe you don't watch Call Your Age, Call My Agent. Dory's right. It's so like, and I wrote back to the person. I was like defensive. I was like, um, I just binged the first season. <laughs> so I apologize to that listener. You caught me in a, a, a moment of defensiveness, but. Look, so I didn't, you didn't, I didn't think you sounded defensive. I mean, I was also excited. I was so yeah. I'd be like, listener, I gotcha. But yeah, you know, uh, you were right. It makes me wonder if I should do other things you've told me to do that I haven't done because it's great. I'm so glad I had this like excuse of a day to rest so I could yeah, just. I'm kind of jealous. It was really nice. Like I had prepared my whole family. I was like, you know, Anthony, you have to do everything tomorrow. And like children do not bother me. And they're very aware of like people getting vaccinated and the, you know, the, the 
<clears throat> symptoms after and stuff like that. They're like very tapped into all that. So they were like more than willing to leave me alone, which was great because I'm now in the middle of the second season of Call My Agent. Oh and I never wanted goodness. to end. Mon it Dieu. really is. It, it really <laughs> is fantastic. And you know what? I also am enjoying. I mean, first of all, I could not watch it without subtitles. Number one, I would have oh, no idea what was going yeah, on. Same. But I, I am liking listening to people speak French. Like I'm, I'm conversational French is, it's not like how I learned it in school. So it's like kind of interesting just to let my brain kind of wrap my head around it. Like yeah. the slang, like how they yeah. always, you know, sign off on the phone calls with like kiss, kiss, but it's like beast, beast. It's mm-hmm. it, look. It's just fun for me. So, and everyone's hot. My favorite, um, most important thing of any TV show is that everyone's, <laughs> I'm attracted to everyone. So, I know, maybe that's what I should have emphasized when I was trying to get you to watch it initially. I should have been yeah. like, everyone is smoking hot. Even like the people who you don't think are going to be hot, are they turn hot. Everyone's hot. Everyone's hot. It's true. I'm in love with everyone. I mean, it's also because they're French. This is true. Like one of my first loves as a teen was a, a French guy. Oh, yeah. We never kissed, but oh. I really wanted to. I was like 15. He was so hot. And I, I still Google him. He's a DJ. Wow. Mm-hmm. He really became mm-hmm. the person he was supposed to be. <laughs> he wore cologne and he was like 17. And I remember it oh like, gosh. it was like the best smell in the world. Mm. Wow. Yeah, you know, 15-year-old meet, meet him at a summer program. Wow. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Too scared to kiss. The Kate Spencer story. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, dreamt of this French boy. And I think we could have made out. Oh, the regrets. <sighs> oh, this wow. is what I'm thinking of as I lay here with my swollen lymph nodes. Oh. I did want well, to share one one thing with yes, listeners yes. is that Please. I did a little bit of like prep for my um, second COVID vaccine and I made myself some beef bone broth. So for my meat consuming friends, um, I'm going to include a recipe in our show notes that I followed very loosely, but I have found mm-hmm. it very nice to have on hand and um, it's so easy, so easy. And I just slurp it in a mug. So anyway, I will include my beef bone broth recipe, but it's really nice to sip when you're like, have the chills or feel feverish and that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's what's new with me. As I've been here consuming your favorite TV show, what's going on over there? Okay. So I'm reading a new book. It is nonfiction. It is called Empire of Pain. And it is the new biography, I guess, of the, well, no, sorry. The full title is Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. And it was written by Patrick Radden Keefe, who wrote that book, Say Nothing, about Ireland that I didn't read because it seemed too depressing. <laughs> oh, I don't need, I've never even heard of this book. Um, but it's it's pretty fascinating, okay. I have to say. So if you're into like big sweeping family saga, nonfiction, like wrongdoing, malfeasance, slippery people, 
You know, this is the family that invented Oxycontin. I know. And has, and has like tried to get out of being responsible for it for the past, what, 20 years. And they've made a gajillions of money off they the have Oxy- made Oxycontin. Gajillions of money off of Oxycontin. Um, but it is pretty fascinating to read. Like, I'm, I'm still on like the origin story of the family. We haven't gotten to the Oxycontin yet. Oh, interesting. Okay. But we did just get to another drug that they made and like got approved in a totally shady way. They're just shady. And rich. And rich. So it's really interesting. How long does it take you to read a book like that, Dory? Good question. When will you wrap this up? Is this a week-long project? Do you knock it out in a few days? No, I feel like this is like, because, you know, I, I only read, I pretty much only read right before I go to bed. So depending on how tired I am, that can be anywhere from five to 30 minutes. Okay. Right? So on the nights where it's five minutes, it's like a couple pages. Um, if it's like 30 minutes, I can knock out some more. But this is also a very long book. I think it's over 500 pages. Oh, my gosh. So I think this will take me probably till the end of next week. Oh, okay. That's that's a pretty quick turnaround. Is it? I don't know. To like me, two it is. Weeks? I'm, I'm reading this book right now called A Rogue of One's Own, which is <laughs> which is a historical romance. I appreciate that title. It's pretty good, right? And yeah. I it's I'm enjoying it. The author is Evie Dunmore, but I find like one of the most delicious feelings in the world is when I get in my bed and like turn the lights down low and I go to read and then like after two minutes I just close my eyes. <laughs> yeah. I so mean good. that does that does happen a lot, I will say. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah, look, we could talk in a month and I'm still not finished, but that is my best guess. You have a good pace going though, I think. I think I do. And you know what? It's it's very um it's very fast moving. Like it's an engaging book. It's not like one of those books where I'm like, oh, gotta read this book again. I just, <laughs> I actually just abandoned a book. I'm not going to say what book it was, but I, I did just abandon a book that I just like wasn't getting into. You know, I think that abandoning a book is a great self care practice. And I say this and I welcome people to abandon my books if they're not working for you as a writer. Like there's no, totally. It doesn't, you know, writers put so much effort into their work, but it's not for everyone. And I don't yes. feel like we should force ourselves to read something that we would, for whatever reason, we're not enjoying. It doesn't, you know, it's not a critique of the book per se. Totally. I completely agree. And then there are times when I'm like, when I kind of check myself and I'm like, I am not looking forward to getting into bed and picking up this book tonight. And then I'm like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be reading it at all. Yeah. We have so, so little time, you know? It's like... Totally. So free yourself from the shackles of a bad book. Or not even a bad book, just a book that's not for you. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't need to be bad. There's no such thing as a bad book. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, there's a couple. Okay, there are not a true. few. <laughs> I'm trying to be courteous to our fellow writers, but I mean, I can think of like a handful. I can too. Don't ask us which ones. <laughs> no. Um. All right. Well, listen, we, our interview today is with a woman named Dorothy Brown. She is a law professor. She teaches tax law. Now you might be saying to yourself, tax law? 
what, why are Kate and Dory interviewing a tax professor? Like, this is not interesting. And I am here to tell you, oh, no, no, no. It is extremely interesting. Dorothy Brown wrote a book called The Whiteness of Wealth. And it's all about how the tax code is racist. And it's fascinating. It is fascinating. She is fascinating. She's so funny. She's so engaging. I mean, I have no desire to be a tax lawyer. But at the end of our conversation, I was like, can I take your class? Yes. Same. (laughs) She was basically like, "Uh, you can get into Emory Law School. Sorry. (laughs) No, you and I would be standing outside the gate. I also have to say, like, as someone who literally doesn't quite understand how the tax I don't even understand my own taxes much less like math very well but her book is really accessible and I I read the whole thing and devoured it and I actually sent a copy to my dad because I just thought it was it's really interesting and she's got a really fun self-care practice oh she sure does an enviable self-care practice if I do yes. say so myself I would say a hashtag gold self-care practice yeah uh, yes to be like honest a, vi- a vision board a vision yes, board level a vision yeah. board level of anyway, goals. We loved, loved talking to her. So, um, and her book is so great. That. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Kate, I feel like we are like barreling into summer. It's happening so fast. It is. And I feel like also with summer just come more social events. There's weddings. There's nights out. It's vacations. I mean, like all the things happening in summer. And what I love is that Honey Love has just the right thing for all those events. Feel comfortable and confident this summer with Honey Love's best-selling Super Power Short. The Super Power Short smooth shapes and lifts, giving you a flawless silhouette under any outfit with targeted compression technology that distinguishes between areas where you want more support and areas you need less compression. It's designed to work with your body, not against it. Speaking of working with your bod, the crossover bra, which I'm wearing as we speak. I wear that my, thing every day. I do too. Uh, it's my favorite Honey Love piece. Let me let me just tell you why. Yeah, get or, into okay, it. Do you want to tell me why? No, no. I was just <laughs> going to say like, I, I, I don't even need to wear it to events. I wear it like the event is every day of my life. Yes, that's such a good way of putting it. The bra gives all the support of traditional bras without using any underwires. And just like sidebar, I have put on some of my old underwire bras lately and been like, oh God, like get this off of me. No, thank <laughs> once you. you. Once you start wearing Honey Love, you're just like, no, not yep. going back. You see also, how it like, could be. Yes. Also like summer sweat under those underwires. It's like, ugh, the worst. Now you don't have to worry about it. Get the support you need with the comfort you deserve and treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market. Save 20% off at honeylove.com slash forever. 
Use our exclusive link to get 20% off honeylove.com slash forever. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them and please support our show and tell them we sent you. The summer vibes are just getting started. So shape your life with Honey Love. You know, Dory, we talk to a lot of really fantastic, intelligent people on this podcast, but I don't know, maybe you're like us and you want to go even deeper. Mm, I'd love to go deeper. We like to go deep. And that's not only possible with today's sponsor, but also easy to accomplish on Masterclass. Every year, I get really into the classes offered and the instructors offering them. Like I'm all over the place with the things that I like on Masterclass. But this year, I am very interested in the class Redefining Feminism, which is 14 lessons from Gloria Steinem. Okay. Now, they dissect issues women face in the U.S. and ways we can play a role in the feminist movement in our everyday lives. Look, I majored in women and gender studies in college. So this is right up my alley. But even if you didn't, even if you're like, this is the first time I'm hearing those words. I would argue, especially if you didn't. Yes, Get into it with Masterclass because this is the year you can really learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Go from just talking about improving to actually doing the things you've been wanting to do with Masterclass. And it doesn't have to be redefining feminism with Gloria Steinem. It can be gardening in your own garden or your yard or patio. It can be learning to cook Indian food or designing a space that you love. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors. So whether you want to master like negotiation with Chris Voss or think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe capture your vision through photography with Petra Collins, Masterclass has you covered. With Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash F35. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash F35. That's masterclass.com slash F35. You know, the weather's getting warmer. So I, for one, am ready to say goodbye to my jackets and my sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I'm right there with you, Kate. And you know what I actually... Actually, I donned double quince the other night. I've got to tell you. Okay. This is what's so great about quince because I feel like I have really been able to update my wardrobe like for the long haul without spending a fortune. I wore a gorgeous white tee, like a simple, perfect white cotton t-shirt from Mm. quince. But it was a little chilly out. So I threw on my cashmere hoodie. Also from Quince. Ooh, mm-hmm. okay. It, it, like they have basically given me a lineup of timeless pieces that I feel like keep me looking. I, I'm going to toot my own horn. Effortlessly chic, whether it's winter toot, or, toot, Kate. or summer. They've got premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30. You've got washable silk tops, really stunning 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. Like truly 
the list goes on and on. And the best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes, something that's very important to us. So look, if you're going on a trip, if you just need to update your summer wardrobe, get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash forever35 for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash forever35 to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash forever35. Our guest today is Dr. Dorothy Brown. Um, Welcome to Forever 35. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Uh, Dorothy A. Brown is an Asa Griggs Candler Professor at Emily excuse me, at Emory University School of Law, a graduate of Fordham University and Georgetown Law. She received her LLM in taxation from New York University, a nationally recognized scholar in the areas of race, class, and tax policy. She has published dozens of articles, essays, and book chapters on the topic and has a brand new book called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Born and raised in the South Bronx in New York City, Dorothy Brown currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia. And yeah, we're just, we're so excited to have you. We're so excited to talk about your book. Um, Thank you. I I think Kate and I both saw, I think we both saw your Bloomberg article. (laughs) And we were like, we must get her on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, So, well, we do like to start uh, by asking all of our guests about a self-care practice that they have, Um, something that, you know, can be really can be anything, but something that kind of brings you, you know, a sense of calm um, that you that you do regularly. So I will say one of the things I did that was self-care for me was in 2012, I bought a home on Martha's Vineyard, a place where I vacationed since the late 1970s. And I vacationed there every year. When I got the job at Emory, it was such a hassle selling my house in Virginia, where I was teaching before, that I said I never wanted to tie a job to a house again. So I didn't buy in Atlanta, but I said, I want to buy. So where am I going to buy? And I bought in 2012, a house on Martha's Vineyard, which my friends call it paradise. I call it the Emory house because it was stress at Emory that made me buy it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love going there. I spend the summer there. I get up there as much as I can in the fall. I tend to spend when we're not in COVID um, the winter break there. And then I get back up as early as I can in April as possible. So that's, that's like my big self care. Yeah. I also like vegging in front of the TV. What do you veg in front of? You know, I watch, believe it or not, I like watch reruns. So I never miss an episode of The Office when I can Uh watch it. I like 
even though I know the dialogue, <laughs> mm-hmm. I still watch it. So I love The Office. I love Scandal. I love Grey's Anatomy. So I just binge watch on very, oh, Downton Abbey. Love Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. So they're just a bunch of shows that I just watch on repeat. <laughs> and I love it. Something about knowing what a character is about to say is very comforting. <laughs> like having there be yes. no suspense and knowing where it's going to go, it feels good. It does. It does. So I like that. Well, you're talking to two people who actually grew up in Massachusetts and my, my oh. cousin's a lobsterman on, um, on the vineyard. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. He's there full time in Manemsha. I want to Manemsha, say but, absolutely. Yeah. That's that that's where you you would do that in Manemsha, yes. But it's such a beautiful, I mean that's such a beautiful spot and what an amazing like buying a home is such a big per, big purchase and so often we do it for very practical reasons like you were saying you had bought a home right. and tied it to work. And so to tie it to a place fun. that represents, yeah, like fun and rest, and like your your truest self is really that must that must have felt very in, empowering. I don't know that that just seems. I don't know. It was awesome. a dream come true, yeah. and I had been chasing it. I had first of all, I had the broker, you know, who who had more patience than Job, right? So she stuck with me year after year after year when I would see things in my price range, but I wouldn't want to pull the trigger because it was like a fixer-upper next door to the gas station. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I can't spend all this Mm -hmm. money on that. And then the market got soft in 2011. And that's when we were able to pull the trigger. And uh, it was the single best decision that I made. It also ties to the book. Yeah, because I was doing research on home ownership for an article when I was selling my Virginia home, and my Virginia home was in a racially diverse neighborhood. And what I learned when I was having difficulty selling the house while I was researching a home ownership and race article was that I bought in a racially diverse neighborhood, which meant I wasn't going to get as much money on sale as if I had bought in an all white neighborhood, which is where I bought my first home. So in Ohio, I bought in an all white neighborhood. I was the only black. Well, there were 200 houses. There was me and one other family, black family that I didn't even know about till I was ready to move. The house sold and appreciated, you know, the way homeownership is supposed to work. Then I'm having this problem selling this house in Virginia, and I I come across the research that explains why. So I said to myself, okay, now you know. You know when you buy a home, if you want to be around black people, you're going to have to pay a price, except if you buy in Martha's Vineyard, because Martha's Vineyard is this really white island. But in the summer, there are a lot of black people that hang out at Martha's Vineyard. So I literally got the the best of both worlds. Yes, like the Obamas, who I do not know. I have not hung out with them. But yes, rumor has it they hang out somewhere on the island, right? So it's just, it's, it's a lovely, you know, it may be sui generis. It may be like the only place where you can get the wealth because it's a white space, but it's really a lot of black people and very welcoming to black people as well. So, you know, now I, I made a knowing decision and I'm just so pleased. Yeah, that was something that was really interesting to read in your book. Um, this idea that for most black Americans, real estate 
has not been a good investment. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the history behind that and why that is? And Yes. So first of all, most people don't realize that there was a time when most Americans were not homeowners. And we were not homeowners because you paid cash for your house or you had short-term debt. And most people couldn't afford that. So there were very low percentages of homeowners. And then post-World War II, the idea was we want to create a nation of homeowners, and but it's really white homeowners. And we had the government with FHA-insured loans. So for the first time, you could have long-term, 30-year, fixed-rate, low-interest mortgages. So Everybody could afford, not everybody, lots of people could afford homes that couldn't before because you didn't have to pay for it all in cash or be able to come up with the money in three to five years. But the federal government limited who could be eligible for these loans and like 98% of them went to white households. Mm -hmm. So very few black Americans were able to get the benefit of this. But from 1940 to 1950 was when we saw a majority of white Americans becoming homeowners with these mm -hmm. FHA insured mortgages. So we had the federal government putting their thumb on the scale and basically saying, black people, we're not going to let you buy homes um, the way we are going to facilitate white homeownership. But then we had the Civil Rights Act and we had the Fair Housing Act of 68. So it's no longer legal to say black people know. But the market still penalizes black homeowners. In fact, research tells us that white Americans don't want to live around too many black Americans. Mm -hmm. And it's simply the presence of black Americans that cause white Americans to see the value of the home as less. And there's research that quantifies that. If it's more than 10%, you start to see the housing values decrease. If it's more than 20, if it's more than 30. So the, the, the more black neighbors you have, the lower the value of the home. So we have a system where today you would say, well, it's illegal to discriminate against by race. It's illegal to have a racially restrictive covenant. Yeah, but the majority of homeowners are white homeowners and they have their preferences and their preferences to not live around too many black Americans. And how does this relate to the tax code? Yes. So <laughs> when you sell your home, if you're married, you can get up to half a million dollars tax free. That's a lot. Half a million dollars. If you're yeah. single, 250,000, right? That's a lot of money tax free. If you sell your home for a loss, you don't get a tax break. And research shows where's the most appreciation. It's in the all-white neighborhoods that very few Black Americans own homes in. So the subsidy that gives you up to half a million dollars tax-free is going disproportionately to white Americans. On the other side, Black Americans are the ones most likely to sell our homes for a loss. Mm. And the loss is not deductible. So we have white homeowners who are tax winners and black homeowners who are more likely to be tax losers. In fact, when I sold my home in Virginia, I sold it for a loss. It was mm -hmm. more than what I paid. Yeah. It was more than the mortgage. So I didn't have a short sale, but it was a loss that I couldn't do anything with tax-wise. 
when you sold your home in Ohio that you mentioned was in the all white neighborhood, did that, that was happen? a tax free gain? There you go. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. (laughs) Can you can you tell us you have this wonderful through line throughout your whole book about your family and even the the book is dedicated to your mother. Um, Can you talk about that experience and how kind of learning about tax policy and how you saw it play out in your your own family's um, finances really sparked your interest in in discovering more? Yes, this book would not exist had I not started doing my parents' tax returns, right? So as a dutiful daughter with an LLM in tax, I'm doing their taxes, right? I'm doing my taxes. I'm doing their taxes. My income is equal to my parents' combined income. So they're making considerably less than me, but added together, we're about the same. And I look at their tax bill and I look at my tax bill and I go, I should be paying a whole lot more than they are, but I wasn't. I was paying more, but not a whole lot. And something said in my gut, there's something wrong here. And I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was following the law, but but it didn't make sense. My parents, I always came away every April with my parents are paying too much in taxes. I don't know. You know, I have this degree. It should be able to help me figure this out, but I can't figure it out. And then I would go back to work and, you know, finish the returns and, and never think about it again until the next year. So this happened year <laughs> after year after year. And because I had a full time job, I didn't have the luxury of like sitting back and thinking. So I became, you know, at some point I became a law professor. I'm still doing my parents' tax returns until my father fired me. But that's another story. So I'm <laughs> <Ooh>. still doing <laughs> which we'll get to that. Okay. I'm still doing my parents' tax returns. And one day, instead of preparing for class, uh, teaching partnership tax, I wanted to read something interesting. So I picked up this article that was written by a mentor and in the, it was, it was called toward developing a black legal scholarship. He was making the argument that every black law professor, no matter what area of the law we teach in, we should look for systemic racism in our area of the law. Well, I went into tax law knowing it had nothing to do with race. I went to tax law on purpose, right? So I went to tax law because growing up in the South Bronx, experiencing racism, observing racism, it's like, I had to live with this. I don't want to have to work with it too. Mm -hmm. So tax law, the only color that matters is green. So I thought. So I read this article and it says towards the end, like two pages from the end or something like that. How do you know there isn't a race and tax problem until you look? And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Race and tax? So he was a mentor. I picked up the phone and I called him and I said, I'm going to do something. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something. He says, great, go for it. Well, first up, IRS doesn't publish statistics by race. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. How am I going to do something when the government agency that has the data doesn't publish it? So I then became a detective and I would like read everything that I could get my hands on that had race in it that could help me think through this. And I came across a Commission on Civil Rights study that said 40 percent of married black wives, well, married black wives contribute 40 percent to household income and married white wives contribute 29 percent. And this was gold for me. Anybody else looking at it wouldn't have thought much of it. But it explained, well, what it ultimately did was explain why my parents paid so much in taxes. But my mother and my father were like 50-50. Well, if most black women are contributing 40%, 
What I know from the tax lawyer is they're paying a marriage penalty. They're paying higher taxes when they get married. The marriage penalty starts when you contribute more than 20% to household income. So I said, ooh, let me see if I can tease this out a little. And I was at, um, I then moved from George Mason to Cincinnati and the University of Cincinnati had an institute for policy research, I think it was called, where they could run numbers for faculty for free. Because I didn't have a PhD. I didn't have that that um, expertise. So I asked them to look at Census Bureau data, married couples. It was heterosexual because it was then 2000 and there was no such thing as same-sex marriage being allowed to get tax benefits. So it was heterosexual couples, White and black, because the majority of white married couples, majority of black married couples are same race couples. And guess what I found? White married couples, when they get married, are more likely to get a tax cut. It's called a marriage bonus because their household contributions are like a hundred zero. There's a wage earner, generally a man who works in the paid labor market, and then there's a stay at home spouse. When they get married, they get a tax cut. That couple is most likely to be white. Couples like my parents are most likely to be black. They're most likely to be in the 40, 60, 50, 50 category where the tax penalties are the highest. So the very first thing I wrote, I uncovered the mystery of my parents' tax returns. And I figured out they paid so much in taxes because they were married to each other and earned income roughly equal. So once I once I figured that out, it was like, okay, I'm on to something, or I should say my mentor was on to something, mm-hmm. telling me to look. And now I'll tell you why my father fired me from doing the taxes. Okay. <laughs> so once I became an actor, and my father's now deceased, so he can't refute this, but this mm-hmm. is the truth. Once I became a law professor, April is the worst month ever. We are finishing up the semester, we are writing our exams, we are we are overworked. And the tax return draft, you know, sending my parents the taxes kept getting later and later (laughs) and later. And my father was a planner and he wanted to get his taxes sooner. So um, for the first couple of years that I became a law professor, I did their taxes. And then one one time my father said, you know, my nickname's Andy. Andy, you know, you got this new job. It's really, you know, hard. Why don't we just find an accountant in the Bronx <laughs> and you don't have to do it? And I smiled and said, Daddy, would you rather do that? Yeah, I think I would. So I hung up the phone and I laughed. I said, my father just fired me. Okay. It was very polite, but he just right. fired me. And so, he did yeah. it in a very loving way. Very loving way. <laughs> you know, you're really busy with work. We're so proud of you. I think we're going to hire somebody to do our taxes. Okay, Daddy, you can do that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, oh, go ahead, Kate. No, I, I just, this is such an Im- important example um, that you give. And I, I feel like there are examples like this throughout the book where it goes, it's so in- ingrained and so systemic um, that oftentimes, especially white people, we don't, like, we don't see, we're not seeing it because we're not right. ex- experiencing it. Um, and so I know you, you talk a lot about, um, 
just all the the tax code is inherently upholding white supremacy and and right how did we we get here both like in laws that were you know very racist laws that were established and whatnot but also how how does it keep sustaining yeah that's a great question and part of why it perpetuates and continues is the IRS doesn't publish statistics by race. That's so if crazy. I don't become a detective, right, over the last 20 something years and write this book, nobody ever knows this. Literally. Yeah. If my mentor doesn't write the piece that makes me think about this, and then I'm just determined because as I write about in the book, my research, to put it politely, was not well received by white male law professors who don't. It, they knew better than me, right? It couldn't be race. It's class. So I not only pushed past the IRS lack of statistics, I pushed past my field that told me time and time again, I should stop it. I don't know what I'm talking about. They know what they're talking about. So it perpetuates because the IRS is complicit, right? By choosing not to publish these statistics. And it's a choice. We are, we are put in the position where everyone can say, well, race has nothing to do with it. So how did we get here? Our tax laws, certainly our modern progressive tax system, dates back to 1913. So let's just pause there for a moment. What was life like in 1913 for the typical Black American? Okay, we were not running the world, right? So it shouldn't surprise us that tax policies that have a root into 1913 disadvantage people who look like me and advantage wealthy white Americans. That shouldn't be a surprise. But, you know, lawyers tend to be, we know the law, we want to deal with the law, but what we really need is context, and that's what history provides. So part of what I do in the book is I tell you, how did we get these tax subsidies, for example, that gain on sale as tax-free? Well, it, it dates back to 1951. Well, let's talk about 1951. Uh, separate but equal was the law of the land. Brown v. Board of Ed had not been decided. There was no Civil Rights Act. It's, I mean, just think about it. Yeah. If you've got a tax provision that dates back to 1951, it's designed for white people. I, it, 1950, we finally had 55% of white homeowners, of white Americans are homeowners for the first time. And the defense industry wants to beef up. So they want to recruit people from across the country. So the real estate lobby says, let's get them a tax break to make it easy for them to sell their homes that they recently bought. They weren't trying to help black people. They were trying to help white people. It was very normal. So a lot of these provisions date back to a, a time in history that people want to think is behind us, but we drag it with us every April 15th. So we're just going to take a short break and we will be right back. You know, we have been delving more and more into the topic of our skin as we get older and how we treat it and how we love it. Because look, as I'm learning in my mid-40s, as you get older, you deal with new things when it comes to your skin. Not that they're bad. They're just new. You know what I mean? Like I am now just discovering creppiness, Dory. Mm. 
Okay. Which is okay. I know. Visible on my <sighs> neck and chest. Luckily, it's a thing. It's a thing. Luckily, OneSkin, our sponsor today, knows all about things like crappiness. And I'm not overly concerned with aesthetics, but like I do just want to keep my skin healthy as I age. Totally. I love their topical supplements. They really help your skin feel, I don't want to say younger, but just vibrant, mm. refreshed. They combine tissue engineering, data analysis, and cutting edge longevity science to literally create the world's most effective product to help with skin aging. I am particularly fond of their face topical supplement. It's essentially a moisturizer, but it has their mm -hmm. proprietary OSO1 peptide to really help with all the parts of our skin that are exposed to environmental damage. You can use it on your face, your hands, your neck. I know here mm -hmm. where we live in Los Angeles, our hands, we're driving. That sun is coming at us at all times. OneSkin believes the Amen. purpose of skincare is not just to improve how we look, but to optimize our skin biology so that it is more resilient to the aging process. They really create next level skincare. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and more importantly, acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code OVER50 at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code OVER50. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them and please support our show and tell them we sent you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, we're back. And can you talk about some of the other um, policies that I think a lot of people today think of as progressive, but you know, you point out were kind of built on a legacy of racism, such as Social Security? Yeah, so Social Security initially excluded agriculture workers and domestic workers, two thirds of which were black people, right? We, you know, we were farmers at the time and we were domestic workers. So by excluding those groups, you were excluding black people from being eligible for social security. You know, the new deal, just like we talked about with FHA loans, right? When we talk about, you know, how did we get employer provided retirement accounts? We got them because there were wage controls in place because of the war. They didn't want inflation to run rampant. So they, they basically said, you can't pay people more than this amount, but you can give them perks. So we have the perks of employment, you know, provider retirement accounts. Who's getting those perks? Who are the workers that the employers are competing over? They're not people like my father, right? There were people like white workers. So we have in situation after situation, a new deal that was discriminatory. So whenever I hear people talk about 
you know, President Biden is like the next new deal. Like, oh, hold up. Wait a minute. Let's let's look at who's being excluded and who's being included, because that's how you find out who's being helped and who's being heard. Um, and, and, you know, President Biden's first executive order dealt with racial equity. So he's not the, the New Deal. Right. But when people say and trumpet the New Deal, you know, it's like the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I'm like, knock it off because. You know, black people were excluded originally. Unions excluded black people. My father, the plumber, for 20 years had to work for a private plumber because the unions in New York would not let him in. And unions negotiate great benefits. So we didn't have health care. We didn't have retirement accounts because my father didn't because the unions kept black people out. So, you know, we need to embrace our history. Yes, we can talk about how far we've come, but let's talk about where we started and perhaps how far we have to go. Yeah, one thing that really struck me actually was in your acknowledgments when you kind of go through how you got to where you are and kind of attribute it to so many almost, you know, random, lucky occurrences. And can you talk yes. about how that is, you know, for Black, you kind of make the argument that for Black people, if you don't have these random, lucky occurrences, you're, it's unlikely that you're going to kind of make it in the same way that you did. Yes, I call it luck and strategy, right? So for me, the luckiest thing was I was born to James and Dottie Brown, right? For me, that's the luckiest thing on earth. Um, But my parents were lucky. My father had a very generous white boss who helped my parents buy their first home. And it was a three-family home, so they rented out the top two floors to help pay with the mortgage, but they gave my parents the down payment as a second mortgage. If it wasn't for that, I don't know what happens, right? So they were very lucky in a number of situations. And the fact that my parents have were able to build wealth doesn't mean you point to them and say everybody else can you just need to do like that no 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 mm-hmm. we got lucky white people get lucky too they just don't talk about it so in my chapter on legacy and how you built intergenerational wealth um there were about 3 white people interviewed for the book none of whom would let us use their last name because they didn't want their personal business getting out They knew whiteness had helped them build wealth, but they didn't want to be associated with that. So, you know, part of what I want the book to do is help us be honest about the luck and strategy um, so that we don't victim blame. We don't say, you know, the racial wealth gap is is a problem because black people don't get married and don't go to college and don't buy homes. When my book shows when black people get married, the taxes, they don't get a tax cut. They buy a home. They don't get the wealth out of it. Paying for college is a nightmare for black people and not so much for white. So at every turn, doing the right thing doesn't put black people ahead. So we really need to examine our system for building wealth. That's really what the book talks about. How do we build wealth? Because tax policy is a key driver of that. I can, you know, make a gift of $15,000 to anybody and they get to keep it tax free. Right. That dates back to 1913. That dates back to like the beginning. Who had wealth back in in the 1913s? Right. So and who didn't? So it, it's um, 
it's prevalent, but it's invisible. You have to bring it out. You have to like ask the question. So I talk to people and they'll talk about, oh, yes, I'm a self-made, blah, blah, blah. I built, brought myself up on my bootstraps. And you ask a couple of questions and you find out, well, okay, grandpa had a trust fund. So that's paid for my college. And my grandmother, my grandparents died and I inherited the house with no mortgage. And I mean, you just pull the thread a little and you're like, you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm speaking from my personal experience in reading your book. It helped me reflect back on my own family's history and narrative and story, right? And how I how I was yeah. able to be someone who got to go to college and in, with zero debt. Yes. Um, and, how, yes. you know, and just reflecting on like, from when my great grandparents immigrated here to now, yes, what what worked in their benefit. And I and it was really, uh, it was incredibly eye opening. Um, and what's so great about that story is a lot of people. So your great grandparents immigrated, right? Mm hmm. I hear people talk about that and say, so I, my great grandparents didn't own any slaves, so it's not my problem, right? Mm -hmm. But Kate says, no, but they built wealth at a time black people couldn't build wealth. You know, so, so there is a benefit here. So people like to say, well, I, I know Justice Scalia, you know, when he was alive would say that I didn't, my grandparents didn't own any slaves. Yeah, but you're white and you got the benefit of whiteness, right? So that's what this gets at. And it doesn't matter that no one in your family owned people. <laughs> you are living in 21st century America and somewhere along there, you got the benefit of some whiteness. Yeah. yeah. I... Oh, Dory, you go. No, 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 go ahead. Um, towards the end of the book, you talk about um, what white people can do to really be allies. This was going to be my question anyway, Kate. So. <laughs> I love it. Proceed. Um, and it, yes, yeah, I, I, I would like to talk about first about that and then about um, the steps you kind of outline for black Americans, Americans to to work within the system that you say, you know, is not designed for their benefit. But um, starting from what white people need to do to actually fight for equity in this way, what yes. are some steps we can, you know, we meaning me and my other white people can, yes. can do? So the first thing, you know, marriage should not cause people to pay more taxes yeah. and it shouldn't benefit uh, white Americans to pay less taxes. So the first thing white people need to do is advocate for individual filing. At the beginning, we had individual filing. We just need to go back there. Okay, that's number one. Number two, with home ownership, you need to think about you know, what choices you make in terms of where you live. You decided, not you, Kate, but people who <laughs> live in all white example. neighborhoods, right? You decided to live in a space with very few black people. And it never, it may have never occurred to you. Well, now that you know that, what are you prepared to do about it? What are you prepared to do to be an ally? Am I telling you to like sell your house and move? No, but I'm telling you when you think about what college to send your children to, or you think about what public school to send your children to, look at the quality of the school, not necessarily how many other white kids go there. Because research shows Upper income white Americans pick schools based on how many other white kids are there. Mm -hmm. So don't do that. And if you are in a diverse neighborhood and the school system isn't up to your liking, 
help make it better. Because one of the things my book shows is white people know how to litigate to get benefits for themselves. You may need to think about how to get benefits for other people. Mm -hmm. If you're sending your child to college, you should think about what the graduation rates are by race. And pick the one that has better graduation rates for black students. So there are things you can do to be an ally. If you live in a diverse neighborhood, don't center yourself. Don't decide, you know, there's this story in D.C. where, you know, a white person moved in, racially diverse neighborhood. There's certain music in a store that had been playing for decades and everybody in the neighborhood loved it. But the, the new white homeowner was like, I don't like it and tried to get it stopped. Don't, don't be that person, Right. If you move into a neighborhood that's racially diverse, first thing, shut up. Listen. Okay? Listen. Don't center yourself. It's not about you. Um, try to find out, you know, what, how can you help? Listen to people tell you and maybe you can't do anything, right? Maybe being an ally is just existing and not mm -hmm. going up to random black people and asking them to explain life to you. Why do black people do this, right? If I had a dollar for every time random white people ask me that question, I could retire. Okay. So maybe your only contribution is not doing that. Read a book instead, <laughs> instead of asking people. So, you know, white Americans, where they send their children, where they choose to live, Think about, and for example, if a white American works in the stock market, they're a financial advisor, what are you doing to reach out to the black community? What are you doing to help black wealth building in the stock market like you do with white clients? So there are, there are things in addition to advocating for the tax reform proposals I do, there are real life things you can do to be a real ally that generally begins with listening. Now, how do black Americans deal with this, right? So we know marriage, we're screwed, right? So what do we do? Don't get married on New Year's Eve. Get married on New Year's Day so that you delay the joint filing one more year, right? That so that so you can do that. interesting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? You can do that. Yes, New Year's Eve is nice and romantic, but New Year's Day, you'll go, yeah, but I'm going to save money, right? So um, when you buy a home, be intentional. So let's say... You decide you want a home to be a good financial investment and you're prepared to be the only black family in the neighborhood. Okay, be prepared. Your neighbors might call the cops on you. If you have children, the school administrators are going to tag them as problem children, no matter how well behaved they are. Because when your kid engages in the same behavior their white peers do, the teachers send them to detention and they don't send the white kids to detention. So you're going to, because I have friends who deal with this, you're going to have to be vigilant. And you're going to have to find a way to create a community of black people for your children and your family and your own mental health. So it'll be a great financial investment, but you will have to do some emotional work to make it work. On the other hand, you can decide to live in a racially diverse neighborhood and don't be house poor. Do not spend all your money on your home. Because you're not going to get it out. You're going to, and whatever you do, don't do a home equity loan, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to minimize the possibility of a short sale. You want to minimize the possibility of losing money. Put your money not in the house, but in your retirement account, maybe a 529 college savings account for your child, putting it in the stock market. Just diversify your portfolio so that all of your wealth isn't a function of owning um, owning your home. So there are, you know, strategies. And, and I think 
around home ownership is really critical because for black people, that is our biggest asset. So you really need to be mindful of where you buy and just be intentional because there isn't a right answer, right? It isn't, oh, you should buy here or you should buy there. It's really what works for you. Like what works for me is renting where I work and owning in Massachusetts, right? That's like crazy, but it really works for me because I don't have the typical job. I have a job where pretty much from May, you know, mid-May to mid-August, I could be anywhere doing anything. So I just choose to spend it where the weather is lovely in Massachusetts, but yeah. Well, we're so grateful that you took time to talk to us today. Um, Thank you for it. Thank you. No, really, your your book really struck us. It was really such an valuable read. Um, and I have to say, as a person who truly does not understand much about taxes or money, uh, very accessible. So I would Thank encourage you. everyone to pick it up, even if you feel like you might not understand tax code, because now I do. And See? after talking to you, I'm like, can I sit in on your classes? <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, last fall, I taught tax on Zoom I had 137 students, bless their hearts, and they just hung in there with me, you know. So, wow. yes, <laughs> yes. It wasn't easy, but they were they were troopers. And I love teaching. I love teaching. I love my students. So, well, well, I'm sure you're really good at it because I know. it's so engaging. So thank you. So Dory and I will you. be enrolling at Emory. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes. Hope we get it. <laughs> no way I would get it. Well, uh, <laughs> Dorothy, where, where, in addition to where can listeners find your book, where can we find you online, um, learn more about you, follow along? Yes. So I have a website, Dorothy A. Brown. I think it's .com, DorothyABrown.com. And I'm on Twitter at Dorothy A. Brown. So I'm kind of easy to find. Wonderful. I'm on LinkedIn. I, I don't know what I am on LinkedIn. Oh, um, and I have an Instagram account and I don't really post on it. So you'll find me on Twitter. You'll find, you know, where I'm doing things for the book on DorothyABrown.com. Oh, and I've had, I have an Emory Law faculty webpage, but that's not up to date. My DorothyABrown.com <laughs> is up to date. But if you want to email me, go to my Emory Law webpage and that'll tell you how to email me. Well, thank you again. This was truly eye opening and delightful to talk to you. Thank you. Well, I still maintain that I want to take one of Dorothy's classes. Maybe she'll do a master class. Maybe she'll do a master class on taxes. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, I, it was really funny when we got on our call. Well, I, I got on first and I was like, may I call you, um, a doctor or professor and she was like no and then you got on and you were like hello professor and she was like no well, no i said the same thing doctor? i said yeah. i said should i call you dr brown and she, she said no she was like no but i really wanted to I just yeah. so I, i'm always so like i don't know excited about titles is that lame well and some people are very particular about titles yeah. so i do think it's always worthwhile to ask yeah like, but I like I, to be called Dr. Shafrir. I don't have a doctorate <laughs> or an MD, but I still like to be called that. I thought you were Detective Shafrir. Well, I'm Dr. Detective Shafrir. <laughs> Esquire. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. I have no titles. 
just mm-hmm. the middle name of horse, which I expect everyone to call me by. Maybe we can call you Lady Kate. Oh, okay. Like kind of yeah. like I'm royalty? Yes. You're aristocracy. I can get behind that. I do have the same last name as Princess Diana. Exactly. Finally, so. my roots have been discovered. All right. Well, listen, <laughs> let's um let's turn this car into the intention zone. Let's drive it over to the intention zone. All righty. Did you do yoga? Okay. I did it once. Good. Nice work. But it was an hour long class. So Split I feel that like up. that should count for at least two. I said I was going to do it three times. I did not do it three times, but I, I was pretty like impressed with myself for doing, for committing to a 60 minute class. Nice work. And you know what? It was great. And I felt great afterwards. And then <sighs> I failed to do any more yoga. I was going to do some last night. And then, you know what happened? I played piano for too long. Oh, look at that, though. That's totally another kind of like, yeah, meditative, almost a movement. Yes. Well, I was working on the third movement. That's what that's called? This, well, because, you know, uh, pieces are divided into movements. I don't know. So, oh, I don't know that. So I was working on a sonatina. I was working on the third movement of this sonatina. Anyway, can I put a request in for a song that you could learn? Yes, sure. Could you learn Bella's lullaby from the Twilight movie? Let me see if I can find the sheet music. (laughs) Uh, Could you learn, because you know Edward Cullen. it is all over the internet. Yeah, Edward Cullen is a pianist. He was played for 118 years. So if you could tackle that, I don't have to hear it. You know what? It doesn't look that hard. See? Bella's Lullaby from the Summit Entertainment film Twilight. Just, just, you know, as a gift to me. Hey, I got you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Of course. All right. Well, so like what is different versions of it? All right. I will look into this more. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to send you down this <laughs> vampire rabbit hole, but I do love, uh, do love the music from Twilight. All right. Well, consider it done. Um, okay. So my intention this week, I, I'm trying to like, I am trying to cook more at home. This has been an ongoing thing, but I do often find that like, I fail to plan. So I'll get to like time to cook dinner and like, oh, I don't have, you know, I don't have chicken or whatever. Um, oh, I'm eating chicken again, by the way. I don't think I've mentioned that on the pod. Well, we, chicken. we welcome you back into, uh, the white meat world, I guess. Welcome Thank to chicken you so again. much. Um, oh, and I'm eating fish also. Eating oh, chicken and fish. look at you. Okay. So, and you know, we recently interviewed Julia Tertian on the podcast. Kate and I, Kate has made a lot of stuff from her cookbook, right? It's Kate? so good. I've made, a, I've made a few, I would say like a handful of things, maybe three. So, I had not until last night mm. when I made her ricotta and potato chip fish cakes with peas, which sounds Yum. weird, but was delicious. And Henry really liked it, too. So, that was fun. So, this week, I just want to cook something else from Julia Tertian's cookbook. That's it. Um, The slow roasted chicken is so good in that new cookbook. Ooh, Okay. You have to roast it for like over two hours, but it's so, it's like set it and forget it, as we say in the cooking world. Okay. I like a set it and forget it. 
Um, all right. Well, Kate, what about you? How did last week go? What do you got going on this week? I rocked it out. I was going to bed at 1030 every night. In fact, the only night I didn't was last night when I should have gone to sleep, but I had napped early in the day. But I was Oh, tr- that's hard. I was also just trying to finish another Call My Agent episode. So I was in bed and I finally hit the lights at 1130. But mm-hmm. I have, I've done a great job going to bed at 1030. It feels, I feel great. So I'm going to keep it going. Oh gosh, excuse me. <sighs> See, I needed to go to sleep. Um, and so this week, you know, we're recording this episode right at the end of April. And I want to plan out, get all our in my families and planning for the summer, like done. I want to get it laid out. It is, there are a lot of moving pieces involving my husband's work, family travel, family visiting. Now that we're, you know, people are getting vaccinated, camp, the dog. You know, then I realized my family were going to be traveling and I just bought three goldfish and now I need to hire someone to come feed my goldfish. Oh, yeah. What, am I, what did I do? Why did I buy fish? So okay. I need to get it all squared away now so that mm-hmm. I'm not panicking like the week before. Okay. 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 I'm trying to really work with my brain. Uh, and also my other thing is to, as many listeners have pointed out, uh, based on a previous episode uh, that I need to deal with my ADHD issues. I have made my appointment to, or I'm making my appointment to go get my like formal ADHD, adult ADHD testing. I am excited for you. Get me officially diagnosed. Yes. I'm excited for you because I feel like this has been a kind of ongoing theme Yes, for a while. Yes, really learned a lot about myself on this podcast, and I think it'll be really satisfying for you to get some answers. I think it will, and I could really use like some next steps in terms of like how to manage the way in which my brain works. So I appreciate everyone who checks in with me about that, and all you listeners out there, you're the best. So I'll I'll report back. Can't wait. All right. Well. <sighs> door it is time to say that forever 35 is hosted and produced by excuse me doctor detective doctor detective dory shafir esquire and lady kate spencer and produced and edited by sammy junio sam reed is our project manager our network partner is Acast, and we will talk to you later thank you so much for listening bye